0: Talking money and investing, so I've had some basic conversations with people this week. Just kind of the nuts and bolts, the beginning of uh, investing type of information that you need to know early on. Just basic financial planning type things, and it just reminds me to talk about things that I don't normally think about talking about. You know, sometimes it just causes me to think, oh, you know what, I need to mention this. This isn't something I normally talk about on the radio a whole lot. And uh, I'll get into just a little bit of that. And, you know, there was a, actually, before I get into that, there was an article in MarketWatch that I thought I would comment on. It's just something that I think is really important for investors to just to kind of know about you know and and that is that when we invest we can't just think about the U.S. we've got to think more about other things around the world other places around the world and investing other areas around the world and the reason being because when we don't think about these other areas and the dollar does weaken You know, that is where we can run into some trouble because, you know, if we're only investing in dollar denominated investments here in the United States, we could lose out on some real opportunities, other areas, just because the issue really gets down to not having Anything that is protecting us against that dollar devaluation, which is international stocks, as I've talked about many times, you know, if we own something that is outside the US, it's just like stuff when you when I was a kid, my father would travel the world. And he would travel the world going to countries where the dollar was very, very strong. And when it was very, very strong, he was able to come back with, I mean, good grief, some really nice, like, china cabinets and and hand-carved things. And and he had these really incredible little dolls that he had when, uh, you know, that, that he had purchased for a song and a dance. And, and since he flew a cargo airplane, you know, they would actually let him take this stuff back. It was pretty cool. You know, hey, you want to bring it on? Just flop it on the cargo plane and strap her in. <laughs> and, you know, so... uh Hence, there were a couple really kind of a neat little hand-me-downs that that we got that were that. Now, one of the things that you have is that, the dollar strengthening. But if the dollar weakens, it goes the other way. Other things are more expensive outside, including stocks of external companies uh, outside the United States. And one of the things that this this article is talking about is, is an undiscovered universe of stocks trading at or near generational lows. Now... This is something I've heard from not our clients because our clients are educated. I I don't hear it from our clients where they talk about, hey, you know, International hasn't done quite as well as US in recent years. And, And, you know, because of that, I think we're just gonna get rid of all of International because they have been worn out, especially in the very first workshop that I teach, where I go through 90 years of history Of the media saying this is dead and then all of a sudden it does way better than everything else this is dead and it does way better than everything else this is doing great and it does way worse than everything else you know so the media is really good at sucking you into what won yesterday and our human minds are really good at it as well because we get sucked into it all the time you know we can go toward pleasure all day long and stay away from pain, and then we end up with pain in our financial plan later on when we kept going toward pleasure our entire lives as investors. When we constantly go toward what won yesterday, we own a bunch of things that did well yesterday. Yesterday's done. It's over. You don't want to invest with your eyes in the rearview mirror. Now, there was... In, in this particular article, a lot of just talk about what's going on around the world. And they said that it's a, it's a particularly attractive entry point for small company stocks internationally. And, you know, I would argue that, you know, they're properly priced based on knowable, predictable information. There's been a lot of bad stuff going on overseas. And, and hence, because of that... The prices are low compared to their earnings and, and compared to their book value. They said here that the current the MSCI World Small Cap Index is at a current low price of $11.90 for every dollar of earnings. You know, so that's what we look at. But that's not what I look at as an investor. I you know I look at book value, and you know, book value is really important because that's the those are the assets of the company, and they are they're they're like really low. Uh, especially the value is down like at, well, you know, if you look at the price to earnings, if you use that, they're using 1190. Uh, I like to go when, when I'm looking for funds, I'm liking not to use indexes in that asset category because when you're using an index, you're overweighting the bigger, small companies, you know, so you end up with even a higher price and it doesn't have the potential to grow because the price is already higher, but you'll have some of the value asset categories sitting at seven bucks I mean, really, really low compared to their 12 bucks here. And you look at it and go, wow, what is that like compared to history? Well, you know, normally you're sitting anywhere between, uh, you know, and they have a chart in this article and it starts off back in 2002, 2003 and it was at about 14 and it went up to about 18 and it went back down to, to below 10, you know, 2009 and that whole debacle. And 2008, 2009, when you had the big market drop. And then it jumped up about to uh, from, from nine or so up to about 17. And then it dropped back down and then went up to about 19, dropped back down, dropped, And well, it's back down toward the 10 region, you know, 10 to 12 region right now. And you look at that, go, yeah, that's a lot lower than the 17, 18, 19, 20 that it had been prior. You know, point well made. Well, if you look at it compared to book value, you know i was seeing that stuff at at a lot about a dollar 20 and now it's at like 70 cents now does that mean that it's a value just waiting to be picked up and we ought to put all our money there no 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 not a good idea but i think it is important to understand that most investors do not have these things in their investment portfolio they just don't i you know i look at 401k's i i can't remember the last time i saw this asset category in a 401k i really don't remember seeing it almost ever and why is that a big deal well the the reason it's a huge deal is let's just go back they had a chart in here and they use rates of return i don't think most people really get rates of return it's not something that you know just those numbers don't mean a whole lot to people well, what they did is they, they had large U.S. stocks in there, and they said, okay, from 1975 until the end of March of 2023, you had a rate of return 9.9%. Okay, so that's just give you some per- perspective on that. And sometimes I'll use this data just to kind of blow people's minds. Because you know, I'll say, oh, man, you have no idea how many people had $10,000 in 1975. That don't have a million right now, <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, what? No, that's I don't have a million. Yeah, no. and you go well, you know, that's that's the lower performing asset category right there, and you go that is what the return has been if you just captured market returns over that period of time. Now, if you had small companies, you know, instead of that, now you've got uh, in, instead of you know instead of a million. You go okay. Well, was that? Well, it's about one and a half million. And you go whoa. Well, what about small value stocks? I mean, you know, that's what we're talking about right here. That's when I want to talk about multi-factor investing. That's what I'm talking about is small value. And you go well, yeah. What is it? What is the what has been you know ten thousand dollars over that period of time from 1975? Well, it's you know five point four million. And you go whoa. That's huge. And you don't know how many people don't have that had $10,000 back in 1975 that don't have 5.4 million. And the point is, is this, you know, if we look at the say, well, you know, small companies versus large companies historically, you know, why have they had an edge? And they said, you know, global small caps have had an edge over large caps back through history. And they also have less correlation. And that is And indeed, a correct statement. And the reason that we typically want to have that in an investment portfolio, because it doesn't move in lockstep with other things. You know, if I have two things that all they move together, then I don't need one of them. And so often what we do as investors is we get large U.S. and we get large international, like, you know, Vanguard, uh, Target Day Funds. What do they do? They invest in a total U.S. fund and a total international fund. Well, what are they dominated by? Large U.S. and large international. Well, what's the problem with that? They move together. So you really don't have the diversification. You know, in name, yeah, I got total market, but there's hardly any money in the small companies. You know, so if you look at, well, just not pick on bigger, look at Fidelity, their target day funds. It's like, you know, last I looked, it was like 5% of the portfolios in small caps. Uh, Just next to nothing. And then you go, you know, T. Rowe Price, I don't care, American funds. Who American funds? They don't even have a small cap fund. They've got a small world fund that's actually investing in medium sized companies. So it's not even investing in that at all. And we don't have a dog in the fight. I don't, you know, I, don't have, I don't get paid by mutual fund companies, so it's not where I'm coming from. But the point is, is that most investors have no clue what they don't have in their investment portfolio. And it's because they don't look at it and they don't know how to look at it. And they expect that the investment advisor or whoever put their 401k together looked at it. And I can just kind of just go on my merry little way. I don't have to worry about it because somebody else looked at it. No, you really can't go on your merry little way. You've got to be vigilant in making sure that you understand what's going on. And then you can relax. You know, then you can stop worrying about it and stop thinking about it. But you know one of the things they said here in this article that I totally disagree with, because that's part of the reason I bring up articles, because you can go on the internet. I talked about this. You, know, you can go on, and I was, and I was uh, talking to one of my people, and Sawaski, we were talking about this. And I said, people go on the internet, and you will find no end to the information as an investor. Whatever you want to research, there's no end to the information. And she goes, yeah. And I said, yeah. And knowledge is not power. You know, knowledge is paralysis, <laughs> is really what it is, because you get so much information, I just I don't even know what to pay attention to anymore. And what happens is when I get overwhelmed with information, I just go, oh, I can't possibly, I'm not up to the task. I can't possibly wade through all this information, and then I just give up. And it's not that you have to do the investment management or anything like that, but you just want to know more about what is going on so that when you make that decision upfront when you invest, then you, then you, can, then you know that you've gotten the information, that the, the, the work has been done, you understand it, it's logical, it makes sense, it fits what you have always learned about investing is one of the things I always say to people. You know, you know the rules of investing. This is something I say quite often to people. and They're like, no, I don't, Paul. No, I don't. And I go, no, you do. So when you own something, when you buy something, you buy stocks, do you buy and sell and buy and sell and buy and sell? They're like, no, 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 no. You buy and hold. Oh, good. Okay. So you knew that rule that you buy and hang on to things. Now, some people get that one wrong. And it's because the investment industry has taught us. And quite, if you, if you look out there, actually, you see that the investment industry does this. They buy and sell and buy and sell. and buy. most people don't realize they're doing it because they don't even know what to look for. Look for the turnover ratio in the funds. Look for the buying and selling. Look at the prospectus. I know you don't like to look at their prospectus. I know that's not fun, but they will tell you in the prospectus how they manage money. Do they trade a lot? Do they look for underpriced things? Do they look for opportunities? You hear that word? Opportunities, you can find opportunity. And you, know, you see those types of that terminology, and it tells you that, oh, maybe they're kind of gambling with my money. They're not necessarily investing it. So that's one thing you can look at. Now, the other thing is, you know, if we look at another rule of investing is, do you put all your stuff in one thing? Well, no, I know do you diversify. Okay, so what is diversification? How do you measure it? Well, you measure it by how things tend to move in dissimilar fashion. Now we can measure that. You know there are ways to do it. Now you may not know how to do it and that's I mean before we ever choose investment vehicles for people, we show them how we're we're measuring diversification so that they see it. If I see it and it makes sense to me, then I don't worry. Because when I worry, that's when I go and change things at the worst times. That's when you that's why you want to know this stuff. Okay? Now the next thing that we see there is well you know, you know that when i when i own things let's say do i try to figure out you know do i do i invest based on past performance well what do markets do they go up and they go down what followed up down so i intuitively know that probably i shouldn't this is a hard one to break people of i probably shouldn't invest on past performance but you know but i knew to buy low sell high But I just broke the rule because my instincts told me to break the rule in this particular case. My instincts tell me to buy something that has done well because the track record's good and that feels good. And then I end up buying and it comes crumbling down. I go, oh, gee, I probably shouldn't have done that. But people kind of intuitively, I think they intuitively know that. So that's another thing that you do. Well, in here, they said... And this is what I want to disagree with because that's the key is, you know, sometimes you'll read stuff and it's just not quite right. They said so they say that part of the outperformance of these small companies is due to lack of transparency, as small, smaller companies tend to attract less attention from brokers and research analysts. Okay, so here's the deal. Is that true? Well, that was tested. I remember a test of that particular concept I'm going back 25 years. And the concept was tested with emerging markets. That was, the, that was the claim. Emerging market stocks, we should be able to stock pick in emerging markets because this is less closely followed by analysts. And analysts tell us what a company should be worth. And since there are fewer analysts looking at that, we ought to be able to find the diamonds in the rough that are selling for less than what they're really worth. And we ought to be able to make more money. There only was one, there's only one problem. The markets did better than them, too. <laughs> it didn't work. You had these people try to pick which stocks were going to do better than others, and the market was beating them handily. Not just a little bit, handily. In a market that was less transparent. So that is not necessarily the case. A. B. What's the other evidence? Well, there's there's a website sometimes I'll bring people to, Spiva. And and what I will do is I will go and say, okay, look at this. Uh, here are the percentage of professional managers managing small U.S. stocks that beat what the market did over the past 15 years. Not that long of a period of time. 15 years. you got to be able to pull that off for at, at least that long, right? No, 97% of them couldn't do it. So, hence... Transparency is not it. The reason, I'll tell you what, I'll take a quick break and I'll give you the reason after this because it'll take a couple seconds to explain it, but it is important to understand. Hey folks, I want to tell you something I'm really excited about. My new book, Confident Financial Planning, is finally out. It's in paperback, hardcover, Kindle version, and I actually have an audiobook version of it. Uh, talks about building your financial castle. I use that throughout the book, talking about your investments. Your financial plan it is kind of like a castle. You have your savings and your emergency funds. I talk about that debt, good debt, bad debt. I talk about special goal funds and how to set those things up and how to invest for those types of special things that you might want to do in the future. Types of retirement accounts, different types of taxation of investment accounts. Talk about real estate investing and pros and cons of that, how to project retirement assets, and your moat. You know, that's how you protect your castle. It's the risk management aspect of a financial plan. If you want to find out more about that, you go to paulwinkler.com forward slash book to get it. And I uh, hope you enjoy. All right. Back here. This is the Investor Coaching Show. Paul Winkler. I was just talking about this. This is an article. If it was in Market Watch, it was talking about an undiscovered universe of stocks is trading near generational lows. Not undiscovered by us. We've been using it for, oh, 23 years, I guess. 23, something like that. And man, I'll tell you what. It was the thing. The asset category, the area of the market that saved the day for us and it was an area that nobody wanted. You know, i to go back and I'll tell you this real quick story, where it came from. I was a broker in the late 90s working for a big investment firm. And I went from one to another, one big insurance company. And then I was like, oh, so worn out over insurance products and going, this is just garbage. They keep telling us this is what it's going to do. And I, I didn't... Thankfully, for our clients, I, I didn't sell. <laughs> I was terrible at selling this stuff. It was only if it really, really made sense for the person that I ever sold something like an annuity. If it really, really made sense. But that was almost never. <laughs> it was almost never. Uh, life insurance, Permanent life insurance policies, not very often. It really didn't make sense for a lot of people. And so, hence, I was a terrible salesperson. Uh, and then, you know, I would, um, I would go out there and look at the investment world and go, I just really don't understand this well enough. I don't feel good about getting out there and talking about investments because, you know, quite frankly, I don't feel very well educated. And that was me after a financial planning degree. I'm telling you, I got my first financial planning degree in like 1991, I think it was. And here I am in 1998, still not feeling terribly comfortable. I've been doing it for 10 years and I didn't feel comfortable. You know, it was just, it was like, I was the same way with golf. (laughs) I was like, I'm not walking on a golf course. I don't golf anymore because it takes too much time and I'm too hyper. But I'm not walking on a golf course until I have taken lessons. You know, so I was, I was that guy that went and took golf lessons. Uh, You know, it's just the way I've always been. But I digress and say, I was working for this brokerage firm and I remember this guy doing this financial plan and he's, you know, talking about how, and he was just basically confusing everybody. And he says, that's it. They're putty in your hands. Once you get them all confused, they, they realize they, they don't understand this stuff. And I'm that's kind of, that's kind of terrible. <laughs> Why would you do that to people? Yuck. Yuck. So anyway, that's, uh, that's when I was leaving the broker-dealer because the broker-dealer was going out of business, and, and I decided to go and become... Well, I wanted to become something else, and I didn't know what to become. And, and the chief compliance officer for the company says, Paul, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. So, well, you never sell any of the stuff, these products you were terrible. <laughs> she told me, she was a terrible salesperson. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Beth. <laughs> she was great. Uh, but, you know, it was... <laughs> She, so she said, you don't sell this stuff. Why don't you become a registered investment advisor and, you know, do it in a way because there are different ways you can do it. You can become a registered investment advisor and then you can go and sell stuff on the side like a lot of people do, you know, sell annuity products and insurance products and stuff like that. Uh, but or you can do it where you just represent the client. And, and she said, that's, you know, so I got help. Bless their hearts. They were great. The Tennessee Department of Securities, they were phenomenal. There was a guy there that helped me out in any way that he could, and he was such a cool guy. I don't know if he's still there anymore, but he was phenomenal. And um, he helped me out setting up some, uh, setting up the the uh, the practice and what I was supposed to do, and you know the paperwork that I needed. And then that was that was it. Well, lo and behold, during that period of time, I've been working with all these different academics. And one of them saying, hey, you know, this area of the market, you know, this is something you ought to have in a portfolio. And it was the asset category that I'm talking about, small international, small international value. Now, I'm not saying go load up on this, folks. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it should be part of a portfolio. But it's a hard asset category to find. And it's because most Americans don't know what it is, number one. They don't hear anything about it. They don't read anything about it and yet during that period of time when i first opened the company in the first 10 years it rocked and it was the area of the market that did really really well and saved so many investors from the market you know just nothingness that happened for 10 years for large us stocks just zero return matter of fact negative returns and what happened was that you know during that period of time it rocketed up because it just doesn't necessarily move with other things that you might own in your portfolio you know so it's really really important but what in this article they said that i wanted to disagree with is they say that the outperformance is due to lack of transparency because you know we don't know much about these companies so the high returns are due to lack of transparency and we can go in there and we can pick the winners and stay away from the losers because you know nobody's analyzing these things and that's just flat wrong because the reality of it is that area of the market rocketed up, regardless of which one of those, you know, you when you own the, the entire market, you did great during that period of time. Like quadrupling money over that period of time that I just mentioned. You know, so, and who knows what's going to happen next. I mean, I mean, that's not where I'm going with this. But the point that I want you to get, because you know, you'll, you, I will always, I will wear you out that I'm not going to time the market or I'm not going to stock pick or I'm not going to cherry pick an asset category other than just educating you a little bit about it, like I am right now, but I'm not gonna cherry pick it and say, let's overemphasize this. That is market timing, it's tactical asset allocation. It's gambling, we're not doing it, we're not going there. Now, one of the things that we do here though, if we look at this and we say, well that's kinda misleading to say that it is due to lack of transparency. No, it's simply that these companies have to historically pay more to use your money. Why? this is more risk. An investor it goes, hey, you know what? I, right now, I'm willing to pay $20 for every dollar of earnings for a U.S. large company. That's what they're selling for right now. You know, the big, big U.S. companies, growth companies, some of them are selling for even more than that, $26, $30 for every dollar of earnings. The lower that number, the dollar that you pay for the dollar of earnings that you get, the higher the expected return or the higher the earnings yield. You know, so you look at that and go, well, if the number is 30, let's say, well, then it's a three 3.3% 3. earnings yield. But if the number is only 10, it's 10%. 10% is a bigger number than 3%, okay? ha <laughs> <laughs> Captain Obvious. <laughs> but you look at that and go, okay, so what are these companies selling for? A lot of them are like $7. You know, so the, the return comes from that higher cost of capital. Why? Because I am not willing to pay 30 bucks for every dollar of earnings of these companies because there's simply, there's more risk. So I'm willing to pay a lower price and I build in for myself a greater expected return, okay? That's the deal. Now, in this particular instance, you know, if we look back through history, those companies typically sell for a lower price because of the increased level of risk. But here's the thing to keep in mind. When we put these things together because they don't move in tandem with large U.S. stocks, because remember, large U.S. stocks had no return for 10 years, where these smaller companies tripled and quadrupled in value, if I owned both of them, I had less risk than the parts. And that is the key, is making sure that we have things that move in dissimilar fashion. But just recognize that there's so much information out on the Internet and, you know, like, and they're, they're talking about using an index in here, and I don't like using indexes for that asset category because they're overweighting the bigger companies. And where do we expect more return? Historically, the smaller companies, what do we own less of where we expect more return? So, but, you know, you, you look at it, bless them, probably if I were in their shoes, if I were a media writer and I had to just get information to you fast, that's probably what I do too, is just write about it in that way so just have a little grace for them. <laughs> hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., PWI, an investment advisor registered in the state of Tennessee. PWI does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation. This information is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any securities.